Hello and welcome to our podcast, What a Library Means to a Woman with special guest Sheila Liming. My name is Hannah Holmes. And my name is Hattie Smith, and we are excited to talk about the book, What a Library Means to a Woman, Edith Wharton and the Will to Collect Books, and to get insight from the author Sheila Liming. Sheila is an Associate Professor of Communications and Special Media at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. She has written a few other books and has been published in many reviews, such as The Atlantic and The Chronicle Review. And we'll be chatting with her today about her book, What a Library Means to a Woman, Edith Wharton and the Will to Collect Books. Sheila's book focuses on author Edith Wharton, writer, designer, and member of the New York aristocracy during the Gilded Age in America. Liming's book analyzes the current state of Wharton's book collection and combs through her writings to determine her place as a book collector, posing the question of her bibliophilic status. Liming talks about how Wharton's collection has not historically been heralded as an example of book collecting in personal libraries, but it's an important part of her archive and a prime example of her time. There's a great summary of the book that we'll link in our discussion post. Without further ado, we'll get into our interview with author Sheila Liming. So your book in general focuses on what a library means to Edith Wharton specifically. And I wanted to ask you, what does a library mean to you personally as an author and as a woman, just to get us started? That's a good question. Um, so I recall that when I was writing the book, um, and I wrote most of it when I was in my, well, I wrote all of it in my previous job when I was at the University of North Dakota. And then I moved you know, to a new job, and now I'm at a small liberal arts school in Vermont. Um, but I recall that when I was working on the book, um, there was this day towards the end of the semester in the spring when I was on campus and I was like working in my campus office and our library at um, UND was going through deaccessioning, um, right? And so they were getting rid of a bunch of books and like outside my building, there was this giant dumpster that books were being dumped into by like basically, you know, like a kind of crane type thing, right? And it was just super ironic to me because, um, you know, I was writing this book about the significance of libraries as like, you know, mechanisms of self-fashioning for women and for people around the turn of the century. And obviously I have a strong connection with libraries and here like the library that I used the most was being, you know, gutted and books were being thrown in the dumpster. Um, so it was, you know, a, a painful thing for me to see um, while I was look, working on this book. And I know it's a reality of the world um, in like library and information sciences. Um, but, you know, to me, libraries are significant points of access. And um, for me personally, I would say that personal libraries or the books that I personally own are a means of repeated access. Like one of the reasons why I hang on to books is because I have interactions with the things that I'm reading, sometimes literally, right? You know, I'll take notes or I'll write something in the book, but also just like the ability to revisit a particular edition of a book that you read once before is like kind of a way to get back to a person that you were at a younger age, a moment in time that you had at a previous like, you know, um, experience. And, you know, sometimes it's also a way for me to gauge like how much I've changed and how much I've learned. Because like when I look at some of the dumb notes that I took in my books as an undergrad or something like that and revisit those, and then now I'm like, oh, well, really glad I don't think that anymore or something like that, you know? Um, so I think for me, a personal library is also a way of like marking progress um, and the development of the self too. Yeah. 
That's great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear you talk about deaccessioning because um, I like I recently took a collection development class for mm -hmm. the library program and we were talking about what all goes into choosing the books that are going to leave the library or like why they would no longer be included in a collection or, you know, if, if a library is downsizing or that kind of thing. And hearing you say that they were being dumped into the dumpster with a giant crane, it makes me thankful like UNC has a program where we donate them to Book Harvest or something like that. But um, that's like a major concern with libraries in general is like yeah. if the public sees people just like dumping books into a dumpster. And they're like, well, obviously the library doesn't need more funding for more books, right? Because they're yeah. getting rid of all of these, you know. Um, it is, it is. And I, I know that one of the only reasons why I actually saw that happening was because like I was working on campus, like school just ended, the year had just concluded. And so it was clear that they were trying to do it like when people wouldn't really be around because yeah. yeah, it doesn't look great in terms of optics. Um, but yeah, I was there to see it, so. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That's really cool. Well, I really like what you said about what it means to you and why you yeah. keep your books. I feel like I'm pretty similar. Like if I keep any book that I've read before, it's because I want to go back and revisit that specific edition or it has like special meaning for me in that way. Um, moving on from that, I just want to ask you a little bit about your research process for the book as well um, and what it was like to visit um, the Mount and see her collection. I know you talk about it in your book and like seeing um her collection like up in the attic and like how you know it felt a little bit neglected and everything like that but just in general if you could you know give our listeners a little bit more of an idea of what it was like and how you got into doing the the research on Edith Wharton and her library that would be great sure um the first time I visited the mount was the summer of 2013 and I was actually uh, I was still a graduate student at the time and I was like working on my dissertation and I had this dissertation fellowship from the Edith Wharton Society um, to go and work with the collection at the mountain. It was still sort of new at that point in time. It had only been donated in 2008 and it had only been on the shelves since 2010. So it was like really, you know, in its third year of kind of being around and open as a resource that scholars or the public could visit. And, um, you know, I was really excited about getting there and working with the books and finding things in the collection. And um, I did have a wonderful time there that first month that I spent there, um, but it was a really difficult collection to navigate um, because the Mount is also, you know, a working museum. And so for their purposes, what they want to have on the shelves are the books that look the best. You know, the ones with the really nice bindings or like the kind of show pieces that you want to take off the shelf and show to people when they're on a tour of the museum. So there's, you know, the signed Henry James copies and there's like Wharton's own copies of her own books on there. And there's a couple in a display case. And then the rest are just like the ones that look like they were in the best condition. Everything else is um, stored away in the attic in these, you know, archival boxes. And they're hard to navigate, not only because of like just accessibility, like getting to the attic and rummaging through the boxes, but the estate at the time didn't have like a good working catalog to allow you to even just like search through what they had. They had like some internal files um, that had not been updated as they continued to get more books and stuff like that. So um, the whole, you know, research process for me that became the book started first with the observation that like, wow, this collection's hard to work with, right? Um, and from there, I, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity for me. And after I was in my first job, you know, I approached the Mount about, um, you know, getting a grant to basically come out there during the summer and help them to organize the library and then create a website that would make it all searchable because that's what they were missing and a kind of a digital catalog in the process too. So they were into that idea. And while I was out there, um, um, I ended up spending four summers there, but it was the first three um, that I was really kind of like working on the digital collection, then writing the book too. Um, 
and while I was out there, you know, I was just, I was looking at the books every day. I was thinking about, um, you know, Edith Wharton's reasons for owning a particular book, especially when you come across things that are kind of surprising. Like, it makes sense to own a lot of the kind of um, canonical literary titles of her day, which of course she does, but there would just be strange things in there too, you know, like travel guides that would be all marked up or like weird cookbooks or like kind of some questionable material too, like relating to the history of like race and eugenics. And you would just always wonder like, what was her reason for owning this? Did someone just like give it to her? And she's like, okay, right. And stuck it on the shelf. Or like, did she care about this book? Did she take it seriously? Did she seriously engage with it? So as I was kind of interested in asking those questions, you know, I started talking a lot to the staff members at the Mount, um, you know, many of whom had lots of stories to tell about how the collection itself was acquired. And I became very interested in that story um, because to me, it spoke to institutional politics, which I'm very interested in, and also to, you know, the kind of um, fragile uh, character of many of our archives that we have access to. And you think about, wow, if it had just been for like, a few different turns of fate or two few different decisions that have been made, this archive would not exist. It would not be accessible to me. So um, working from that story sort of became my kind of vantage point. And that was the story of the bookseller, George Ramsden, who kind of spent about three decades acquiring the collection and then in uh, in discussions sold it to the Mount over a course of about a decade while they were going through negotiations on that. So I, I started to become interested in that story. And then from that, of course, I was already a reader of Edith Wharton and I kind of started Think about it through the politics of her particular era and her generation and what it would have meant for her to acquire and own many of those books, especially when she was not someone who was formally educated, never attended school in her life, and was not sort of um, given access through formal channels to that kind of material in the same way that, say, her brothers would have been or even other people during her generation. Um, so it became this like way for me to tell multiple stories. And that was the beginning of my research method. I wanted to like talk about the institutional politics behind the acquisition of the archive at the Mount. I wanted to talk about Edith Wharton and the politics of her era that led her to amassing that book collection. And I also wanted to talk about like how books are important to her fiction, how they were important to her career as an author and her self-development as an author. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I remember thinking while I was reading a certain parts of the book, like, why would she have owned this specific piece or like then and it's not really a question that you can specifically answer without going back in time and asking her like hey who gave this to you or why did you buy right. this or why did you read this specific part of this book um and it kind of what you were saying kind of goes pretty well into the next question that I wanted to ask you um because it was a question about how she didn't inventory the books that she had in her collection and you were saying that the catalog whenever you went in um to look at the collection was incomplete and you know they hadn't added stuff to it as they had acquired more things and you basically had to make a digital catalog for them for that collection so if her collection half of it was destroyed half of it was missing um and so you don't have all of her books you don't know all of what she was reading um, how does that impact like the conclusions that you draw from your research about not only her as a person, but her as like a writer and a reader? And, you know, if you don't have half of the books that she used, you know, the books that are missing, you don't know which one she would have read, which one she loved, which one she enjoyed that much. I know you have to basically work with what you have, um, but I was just curious if you have any thoughts on how that impacts that and how you know 
like, oh, this is approximately how much was missing whenever I looked at the collection or whenever it was acquired by the Mount, like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was an interesting and complicated process. And that's a really good question too, because um, I was dealing with these kind of like gaps or aporias, right? In what I was um, able to like access and study. Um, and one of the biggest gaps actually had to do with fiction because the vast majority of her collection that included titles of, you know, fictional works, um, that was a big part of what got destroyed in the London bombing when that half was being stored, you know, by one of her heirs. And because we didn't have any lists of that half of the collection, I did have to sometimes like speculate or conjecture about like, you know, whether or not she would have owned a book. And sometimes you can sort of cross-reference that, right? You can look through her letters and her correspondence. So you can see if she mentions having read a particular book or a particular author. You can imagine that's like, okay, if she's talking about Jonathan Swift and she owns the other books of Jonathan Swift, but this title's not in the collection, there's a good chance she probably would have owned it, you know, because um, she liked that author and, and read a lot of him. And, um, you know, at one point in the book, in one of the chapters, I make a comparison between Edith Wharton and this Dutch writer, Louis Couperis, who wrote a novel that's really, really similar to Edith Wharton's first big blockbuster novel, which is called The House of Mirth. And he wrote his about 15 years before she did. And so, you know, of course, one of the first questions I had was like, did she read Couperis? And the answer that I could find to that is like, well, yes, she definitely did, because she has one of her, his books in her collection in translation but she doesn't have the book I was talking about, which is Alina Vare. So in that particular case, I had to kind of speculate that's like, well, she's reading his lesser known works. There's a really good chance that she would have had that book, but it was probably either lost or destroyed. So yeah. once again, like you can't come down with these like certainties and be like hundred percent, she read Alina Vare and then she used it as the basis for her own plot of House of Mirth. Um, but you can kind of draw these connections and draw these lines between objects. And that's sort of what I was trying to do in the book since I had to work through those gaps and those, you know, missing chunks of the library. Yeah, I was just curious about your process. I, I do think it's interesting and also very effective how you make the speculations about well she probably read this because of the time period and also because of what she was interested in mm -hmm. and that kind of thing um house of mirth was actually the book that i had to read by edith wharton for my history of american fiction class in undergrad so like i completely get that whole section yeah. but um but yeah that's cool i just think it would be it's it's impressive but i also think it would be difficult especially for me to have to fill in the gaps of something like that. Like I'm a very concrete evidence type of person. So it's, yeah. it's cool to see how somebody can be like, well, she probably had these, but they were probably in the building that got destroyed by the bombing. That right. And there were a few other um, like archival materials that helped too. So for example, like at the Beinecke library, one of the things that are stored there are some packing lists that she prepared when she was like moving between houses because, you know, she, for a long time, she had a house in the United States and she had a residence in France and she'd go back and forth across the ocean between them. And so she would basically create lists for her servants to refer to about what books she wanted to take with her. And we do have those. So some of those lists, and they're not extensive, you know, they list a couple hundred titles, but some of those lists mention books that are not now in the library. And so that at least gave me the kind of like, um, you know, rationale to speculate a little bit further about some other things that she would have had since we can see that those books were in the collection. Yeah. It's so interesting that those types of lists are some of the items that survived and, you know, <laughs> made it into these archival collections. Because I think about I when I'm packing, I take out my phone and write like a, a <laughs> list in my like notes app. So it's so interesting to think about like the evolution of that through time and like in the future, yeah. how digital lists like that going like going to be saved and preserved in different types of archival collections. So yeah. it's really interesting that those are some of the items that we still have from her. I know it is interesting. And I also love lists like as a genre. Yeah, like, yeah give me some of that. <laughs>
Yeah, um, like I remember reading about where you had talked about her writing the list for her governess being like, these are the books that I want to go with me to mm -hmm. such and such. Or, um, and I also really liked in the very beginning of the book, like within the first couple of pages where you were comparing her collection to, I forget her name, but the woman who had her entire collection destroyed yeah. by the bombing. Yeah. yeah, and she was going through and she was making the list of everything that she had had in an, in an effort to kind of... Um, recover what she had lost in in a sense so I, I'm also very much a list person I've, I have an app <laughs> on my phone that keeps track of every book that I own so I, I can relate to that very you much you know I I tried to do that for a while and I just like fell so behind that it started to become really daunting <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is it is a little bit daunting but I, I would never be organized if I didn't have something to keep me in line so um Okay, this is also kind of a question from just the introduction to your book, um, but it refers to, you know, her being a collector of books um, and how William Royal Tyler had said that she was not a, bi a bibliophile at the time. This is the big theme throughout, you know, a good portion of the book um, is the difference between being a collector of books versus being a lover of books and the, you know, materialism of just wanting to own a lot versus, you know, actually using the materials that you have. Um, so I was just wondering if you could speak to the differences between their definitions of what a book collector is versus a book lover um, mm -hmm. at the time period that she was writing versus what maybe our modern conception is. Um, and then I, this is a little bit long-winded, but there's also a question um, that you ask um, where you say, if Wharton, for instance, is not a bibliophile who is or who was during this period. Um, and I was just curious if you could um, give a summary of how you might answer that kind of question um, for her time versus our time for um, anybody who hasn't read the book or hasn't doesn't know yeah. anything about Edith Wharton. Sure. Um, yeah, the term bibliophile, you know, it's interesting because the word obviously contains that Greek root, right, meaning love. And, you know, literally when we break it down, that's what it means, lover of books. But it had a particular connotation, um, especially in 19th century America, when book collecting was a really big thing that had, you know, come over from Europe and England, where it had become really popular even earlier. Um, and bibliophiles were supposed to be people who sort of um, invested in book collections and invested in collecting as an art, but also as like a financial strategy because libraries were gaining in uh, value as well. And there was a sense that you could either make money from collecting books or at the very least you could kind of like seal your legacy by collecting them. You know, you could donate them to a library and you could get your name on it posthumously or something like that. And that was driving a lot of like the book collecting fervor in America that was going on in the middle to late 19th century. So during that time period, bibliophiles were seen as people who loved the sport of collecting itself and were also interested in the investment side of things. They were not necessarily always people who loved to read books. So meaning they didn't always collect them because they wanted to like handle them and read them and mark them up and share them with their friends or something like that. They were people who wanted to, you know, acquire them and stick them on their shelves. And this is great because you know, in Edith Wharton's novel, The House of Mirth, we get exactly this type of person and we get it contrasted with the book lover. And so the character of Percy Grice is kind of the bibliophile character, right? He is um, collecting not just books, but also historical documents. And he keeps them, um, you know, Wharton describes it, that he has basically like a vault that he keeps them in. He doesn't let anyone see them or touch them so that they will appreciate in value. And eventually he can make money off of that collection. And Wharton compares, you know, 
Lily Bart and her thinking about marrying him to becoming like an object in his collection, like stuck away in a vault and nobody ever gets to see her again. So the bibliophile, I think during the you know 19th century in America, particularly the latter half was seen as that kind of person. Um, the person who was really interested in the sort of pursuit of books and the collecting of it for either financial or like some kind of personal gain. Whereas book lovers um, were seen as people, you know, who actually wanted to read the books and who had exercised taste in collecting them based on their own judgments about what kind of books mattered to them. So it might not always be a book uh, that was collected for its rarity. It might just be like a really beautiful edition that might not be worth very much in the book trade market, but was pleasant to read or pleasant to hold or pleasant to have on the shelf. And we definitely see that with Edith Wharton because she had lots of um, books where she collected multiple editions. And so she would have, you know, four copies of the same book, perhaps so that she could have them at her different houses and always have that book with an access to her. But maybe also just because she already owned one and then she found a nicer copy that she liked later on, right? Um, which is something that I do too, so I can relate to that. Um, and, you know, so for Edith Wharton, she's definitely a book lover. We see her interact with her books. We see her mark them up and you know, reading them very actively. That's not something that a bibliophile, a real trained bibliophile would want to do during that time period because it could lower the value. And, you know, I think one of the most maybe dramatic examples of that is her very, very early edition that she has of the complete works of John Donne. And I do mention it in the book, but like she has marked that up and like adding pencil or I think it's actually blue pencil marking to like a book that rare is not something that a bibliophile would ever do, right? That that would just be a sort of sin against the art of book collecting um, because it would lower the value of the object, but she didn't care. Like she was interacting with the poems and enjoying them. So she went ahead and added her little pencil marks alongside them. So, I mean, I do think of Edith Wharton as a book lover first and foremost, but she was also a bibliophile. And I think she looks more like a bibliophile to us in retrospect mm -hmm. because she owned so many books, um, more books than would have been common for people, uh, especially women during her generation. And now the books have become cheaper to us. Um, you know, maybe her accomplishments don't look as dramatic or as impressive. You know, her library of 5,000 books pales, I guess, when you consider that I think I own 4,000, right? You know, but- I know I I definitely own too many, but um, but yeah, um, but for her time period and for her era, that was still like a lot of investment uh, that she was making. Yeah, um, no, I don't think four thousand books is too many. I'm just impressed <laughs> because I I the reason why I have that list on my phone is I have close to like eight hundred books, um, wow. and I'm just thinking about how much space that takes up, and then thinking about yes. oh wow, yeah, you would really have a hard time cataloging all four thousand of your books and keeping track of that as you acquire it's more. Tough. It's like big winter project that I'm embarking on is like building new bookshelves. I'm in my like campus office right now, but at home, like I basically have a room that's just stacks of books because I don't have enough bookshelves for them. So I have this like winter plan where I'm building bookshelves, like trying to create built-in bookshelves, which I've never built before. And then I will finally have a house for them and then I can find stuff. So that'll be good. But yeah, that's great. That really, what you were saying really makes me wish that I'd had that like historical perspective or like had read your book prior to reading House of Mirth, honestly, because that comparison between like Percy and like the different basically lovers of Lily Bart, like it's interesting to see how Edith Wharton was criticizing the like book collector versus book lover versus like materialist versus like, you know, you're just trying to leave a financial legacy behind. You're not necessarily trying to like 
yeah. the books the way that they were meant to be treated, meaning actually read and use them and, you know, yeah. learn from them. Um, I don't know. I just think it would have been really cool to have that discussion, like in my undergrad class, but, you know, in hindsight, it's, you know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And like so much of the conflict in that book is about like, she doesn't want to marry a guy like Percy, right? She wants mm-hmm. to marry a guy like Lawrence and Lawrence Selden is positioned as being more of a lover of books than a bibliophile. He's somebody who actually like enjoys them. And when she's at his house, she's like handling his books and he's fine with it. So, yeah. I mean, that's supposed to put up some of the initial contrast, but of course he's a bit of a hypocrite, unfortunately. So it doesn't work out. Just, just a little. Yeah. Just a little. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's interesting though. Like, cause I think while I was reading it, it's like, well, I don't really like either of these people. So like, if <laughs> yeah, I know. That one of them is better than the other, but it's like lesser, lesser of two evils, I guess. I don't know. Yep. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, the um, this is going pretty well in terms of the way that I've got these questions ordered because yeah. we're talking about, um, you know, people wanting to have a financial investment or like they they collect books and they accrue value and then they donate them or something like that. Um, and you said that Edith Wharton, like that wasn't really, that wasn't her goal. Like she had her books because she loved them or because she had them gifted to her or she, you know, made notes and she wanted to refer to them again. All, all of those reasons, all those variety of reasons, but it's not, it's obviously not because she wanted to have them stored away in a library or something like that. Um, and so I was just curious um, with that, to what extent do you think that Wharton's like socioeconomic status, her overall socioeconomic class affected her as both like a reader of books and a collector of books, but also as a writer and um, like in her literature, whenever you've read it? Yeah, good question. Um, <clears throat> so her socioeconomic status certainly contributed to her ability to access and acquire books. I mean, she was born to a certain kind of level of privilege that meant that she had disposable income. And books were seen as like things that you could only acquire in the 19th century if you had some kind of disposable income. Like the average middle class or lower down than that. A working class family would not have had very many of them, aside from maybe the Bible. Um, and then as increasingly as we move into the 20th century, that starts to change, right, with cheaper print technologies that make books more inexpensive. Um, so Wharton had a kind of step up already in the world of book collecting, but her parents were not big bibliophiles. They they didn't necessarily um, have like a big reverence for books themselves or for collecting them for the sake of their value. Her father, you know, had what they would refer to at the time as a gentleman's library, which was kind of like you would collect all the works of the major authors that you had heard of. So it'd be like Shakespeare and, you know, Jonathan Swift, and you would have, um, you know, uh, Chaucer and you'd have Dickens and you'd have stuff like that, right? So kind of like the major figures you would have your bases covered in, but it wasn't anything really to crow about that kind of a collection. It wasn't anything too special. And a lot of those would have been acquired in bulk, right? So you would like ask a bookseller for like, I would like the complete works of Chaucer and they would get them all bound for you and give them to you. So that's kind of the environment that she grew up in, which meant that she, on the first hand, had access to books. We know that she also had library memberships, that her parents were members of the New York Society Library, so she was able to access the collection there, too. Um, So that kind of gave her a leg up, I think, a little bit. Um, In terms of becoming an author, I think we can think about a similar situation of privilege that helped her to get to um, becoming an author, because, of course, the main thing an author needs is free time. (laughs) And if you have more money, then you have more access to free time, which she did. Um, She also had like a pretty good education, although it was not a formal education in schools. Um, She had a private governess and the same private governess throughout most of her childhood who kind of guided her through reading and 
She was trained according to a curriculum that would have been common for women of her status of her era that would have emphasized, you know, sort of like reading in the classics, developing a light knowledge of classical languages like Greek and Latin, in addition to like French and German and Italian. So that was um, her sort of basis for getting started as both a reader and an author that was not too shabby, of course. Um, but once she I started to establish herself as an author, I think one of the biggest things that she had going for her was that sense of cultural capital that had come to her through reading. Um, because she had had a decent education, because she'd had access to books as a kid, she also knew how books worked, she knew how stories worked, and she knew how to drop references um, to other kinds of books and authors that would make her own books more worthwhile. So we see that in the House of Mirth, um, where Selden has uh, the copy of the La Bruyere text, and La Bruyere is like a 17th century French play playwright. Um, and he has that on the shelf, and Lily recognizes it and realizes that he has this rare book in her in his collection, and kind of comments on it, and they have a discussion about it. And like that's the sort of like uh, coded reference that somebody like Edith Wharton would have been making to readers of her own class, right? Um, they would have recognized that author's name, and they would have recognized the text from their own education. Education. So that definitely helped her as an author that she could um, encode those levels of cultural capital in a way that entreated her reader to sort of step inside the world she was creating in her stories. Yeah, that's cool. Because those are the kinds of like tidbits of historical knowledge, I guess, that us as modern readers might not know unless, you know, you have a background in that kind of thing. Like, you know, I wouldn't read her book and be like, oh, I know why you're making reference to that book because it's- yep. you know, I had no idea who Labriere was until I researched it. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. Yeah. Um, do you want to go ahead with your question? Yes. Yeah, so speaking of socioeconomic status, um, so in our class, we've talked a lot about Carnegie libraries and mm -hmm. you mentioned them in your book as well. So I was wondering if you could explain the connection and the impact that the Carnegie libraries would have had on Wharton and like her involvement with libraries. Yeah, sure. So this is funny because um, the first time I ever went to the Mount to work with the collection in 2013 when I was a graduate student, my plan had been to talk about her library collection in the context of Carnegie libraries. Because as a graduate student, I was living in Pittsburgh, which is you know the birth of Carnegie Libraries as the system, and where Andrew Carnegie made his home as an immigrant. And um, you know, I was trying to put together this kind of like project idea about like basically comparing what a public library would have had on its shelf to what a very privileged private person would have had on their shelf at the time. And then it kind of got haywire because like I couldn't figure out what was in the the Wharton Library. So I ended up going in a different trajectory. But that's where I started because I was interested in that question and. You know, the Carnegie libraries were expanding throughout the second half of the 19th century. Um, and what's interesting is that a lot of them were, as far as we can tell, like pretty standardized in both, of course, the way that they were built. They all had like similar plans for their buildings and similar features, but also in the kind of collections that they would have had on the shelves. So um, it seems like, you know, from what I've read on the subject that librarians didn't always have like a ton of agency in making decisions that would have run counter to some of those standards that the Carnegie Library were putting in place. Now, you know, in comparison to that, somebody like Edith Wharton, who has a lot of cultural capital and a lot of capital itself, she can make her own decisions about what kind of books she buys and what kind of stuff she has on the shelf. And as a result, she gets to have more interesting incendiary items in her own collection than you might have found at a Carnegie Library. So. Like, I don't know when you could first check out Ulysses from a Carnegie library, but I bet it was, I don't know, at least a decade after publication. Um, whereas Edith Wharton had a first edition copy that was privately printed anonymously by Shakespeare and Company in um, France, right? So, you know, it was printed in France to avoid the censors in the UK, and she ended up with one of those copies. So she was um, 
more able to be on like the ground floor of what was going on in literature and what was going on in culture in general, whereas public libraries would have been, you know, a little bit behind um, in those trends necessarily because of the way that they were structured. And um, Wharton herself did have limited involvement with public libraries. She was on the board of the Lenox Library in Lenox, Massachusetts, which is close to the Mount. And when she was living there in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that library would have been like more kind of focused on serving the kind of working class population um, that lived in a nearby town called Lenoxdale. And a lot of those people were factory workers for pulp mills and paper factories in the area. So she was on the board and she donated things to the libraries. She donated books, she donated furniture, she helped make decisions. And she actually, we think was involved in a cataloging project at one point in time. So she was like helping the library. I guarantee you, she was not a patron. She would not have been taking books off the shelf because I don't think the books she could have gotten there would have fit her expectations for what kinds of things she wanted to read and probably wouldn't have fit her level of cultural capital very well. Um, but that doesn't mean that she was like against the public library movement. She was, you know, um, a champion of it in her own way. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's interesting that you brought up the fact that she probably wouldn't have checked those items out because a lot of what we've talked about in class is, you know, the push for more highbrow materials and, you know, less fiction and more like actual literary literary books and literature mm -hmm. for people to read to, you know, educate themselves yeah. and just the highbrow part of it versus right. like, the push from the public for fiction, for romance, then later on, like Westerns and mystery. So it's yeah. very interesting that like, you know, she probably might not have used it as the same way that um, other like socioeconomic classes would have, especially since she right. had her own library. So yeah. Really no, I think um, the extent to which she used the public library in Lenox was mostly as kind of like a social and philanthropic organization. Um, she did host a French language club that meant there for people who wanted to speak French um, together, but um, we don't have any records of her being like a borrower um, or a patron yeah. of the library. Yeah, well, we've also talked a lot in class about how at the start of the public library movement, at least, I'm not sure not not really by this point. It, by this point, you're kind of getting closer to, you know, realizing that the general public would like to read fiction and you're you should yeah. focus more on popular <laughs> materials and you've got the um circulating libraries instead of the su subscription libraries and that kind of thing going on. But we've talked about how public libraries were kind of started as a way for the upper classes and mm -hmm. like people in positions of power to like push their morals and their ideas on the lower classes because they couldn't purchase books for themselves because as you said it was a big financial investment and so it's like okay well we can't buy books or have a specific say on what's going to be in the library but at least mm -hmm. we can go and we can read the things that are accessible to us so it's like if you choose what specifically is in the library and that's the only thing that they have access to to read you can kind of sway people's thinking on certain mm -hmm. uh topics um yeah. so it's which it kind of is more of a high upper classes like influencing the lower mm -hmm. classes kind of idea Definitely. I guess and so you know she would have been more like, well, I have my own personal book collection, but this is a, a great thing. I'm glad that other people can read in the in the philanthropy aspect of it. Um, but it just it it would just be interesting to go back in time and see how that interaction kind of played out and like her yeah. motivation for helping and like whether it was fully like, oh, I just want everybody to be able to read and have access to books <laughs> or you know, what was going on there. But it's just kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, um, and um, the Mount has a few of the books that she did donate to the Lennox Library because they were deaccessioned and then brought back to the Mount Estate. And so they're like in their collection and it is funny to see some of the books and there's only a few, um, but they are all kind of like practical instructional manuals. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're not like, they're not Ulysses obviously and they're not Geta or anything like that. It's like, um, she's like, what did the working class need? Um, instruction on how to do things, so. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of the yeah. then too. It also kind of shows like a disconnect between like oh, her sure. and like the, the yeah. working class. For like, sure. As, for I don't sure. know. It was interesting, like the parts in your book too, where you were talking about how going through her collection, you had to see her more as like a human mm -hmm. rather than this like mythical author, Edith Wharton. Yeah. Um, and that kind of tells you a little bit too. It's like, well, she might have been just a little bit clueless about she how the other half lived. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> Um, speaking of how she lived, actually, something that I thought was really interesting, and I know Edith Wharton probably would have hated me for this, but I'm a trinket person. I love my trinkets. <laughs> I love my things. And I just thought it was so interesting how she viewed a book and the fact that she would not have considered it a trinket mm -hmm. or a knickknack or it, the fact that it had to have a specific purpose mm -hmm. um, and kind of going into like, you know, William Morris a little bit and have something that's not you know beautiful or useful um yeah what I said that's a throwback to our English I love we we both went to undergrad together um wow. and so we've had a lot of the same professors same classes but William Morris I love him he has my whole heart so I also love William Morris if I was at home in my home office you would see my William Morris wallpaper that when I you were talking about built-ins I was like yes <laughs> all the built-ins everything arts and crafts I love it with you yeah <laughs> But yeah, so can you talk a little bit about like what the definition of a knickknack versus like, you know, a book and like what they would have been used for and kind of um, what would Wharton's thoughts have been on that? And then kind of going into like how that's evolved today, because personally, I feel like I've seen kind of like a resurgence of maximalist culture and, mm -hmm. you know, trinket collecting, especially on TikTok. Um, so I wonder if you have any insight on that and kind of, you know, looking at the evolution of that through time a little bit. Yeah. It's um amusing to think about like how Edith Wharton would have felt about bookstagram, right? Like yes. you know, beautiful, aesthetically pleasing shots of like a book that I'm reading with like the tea and the flower petals yeah. and the cookies or something like that, which I think she would absolutely hate. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, it's it's important to remember that like Edith Wharton, before she was ever a writer of fiction, she was basically a tastemaker. She started out her life as kind of like an interior designer and decorator. And, you know, had some pretty staunch opinions about like how decoration should be done well. It's interesting because her book, The Decoration of Houses, which she, you know, wrote, co-wrote in the 1890s, it was her first published work, technically speaking. Um, and it was also going to be her last published work. She was working on a new um, edition of it when she died. So, I mean, she kind of came back around to those opinions and never really got totally away from them, despite the fact that I think many of the opinions ended up being outdated during her own lifetime. And in that book, she has this treatise on, you know, how to treat libraries and how to treat books in the home, how they should be displayed, how they should be stored, everything like that. Um, and then she also kind of positions that treatise as being against what she thinks of as knickknacks or trinkets or something like that. So she has these design rules that are meant to like um, dissuade you from creating clutter in your house. And that includes from amassing knickknacks and trinkets while also like focusing on what she thinks of as like objects of value or of worth, you know, like books, which are good and virtuous things to have in the home. And so um, 
in her discussion of bookshelves, you know, one of the things she talks about is like bookshelves should only ever be for books. They should be designed in a certain kind of way. I think we now live in a world where the opposite is true. Like these cheap, crappy bookshelves that I have in my office were not made for books, which is why they're all sagging. And, you know, because they like literally weren't meant to hold the weight of books. They were meant to hold trinkets. So now we almost think of it, I think, in the reverse, um, where we imagine that if we're creating storage, we're creating it for decorative items that are going to be displayed. And we don't think of it as much in terms of like, well, I need to house 4,000 books or something like that, um, which was, you know, more her prerogative at the time. So um, I think for her, it all comes down to utility and, and the value that comes from utility, which is in some ways a kind of interesting opinion for somebody with a lot of money and privilege and cultural capital to have that like you should only have things that are useful to you, like easier said than done based on your class level, right? Um, but for her, books were very useful things. And that goes back, I think, to our conversation about her being a bibliophile versus a book lover, like she did intend to use them. So she thought the books should be stored and displayed in the home in a way that would allow them to be functional in daily life so that you can access them and take them off the shelves and read them. She really was against um, bookshelves that were fashionable in the late uh, 19th century that had like trellises put in front of them, like ironwork or um, wire or any of that kind of stuff that was made to, or glass, that was meant to make them look really, really nice and to keep the books in good, pristine condition, but also made you never want to take one out and read it for fear of like upsetting the like aesthetic harmony of the whole thing. Um, so I do think that's one interesting, you know, um, facet of her design scheme is that she wants books to be useful objects um and yeah probably wouldn't be too into like instagram and book tiktok and stuff where people are treating them more as decorative objects yeah no it's definitely an interesting thing to think about um and i feel like it relates a lot to kind of then versus now and like the availability and the access that we have to books especially mm -hmm. books that we're welcoming to our home and like home libraries personal libraries and kind of not like a de-escalation of worth, but kind of like a changing of the value that we place on it and mm -hmm. um, kind of looking, because like, honestly, I decorate with books. I know she would have hated it, but I, I decorate with books. I decorate with trinkets, all of those things. And I feel like a lot of that comes to like, you know, sentimental value too, rather than actual like monetary value. So I feel like it's kind of, you know, just a change in viewpoints that's happened through time. So it's really interesting to kind of like contrast that and see that, you know, reflected in your book and reflected like in her own personal life. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why she was so allergic to clutter, except for if, as far as I can tell, she probably saw it as a class issue and yeah. probably increasingly associated it with middle-class values. Yeah. Um, right. Because like okay. goods were becoming a little bit more mass produced during her era, um, but they wouldn't have necessarily always been like nice goods. And I think she just kind of saw like the, cheap clutter of a middle-class home is something that had to be avoided. That makes sense <laughs> yeah. to me too, because I think in um, my Victorian literature class, we had talked about the a little bit about the growth of the middle class, like the start of the growth mm -hmm. of the middle class, and looked at basically some images of what like maybe like an upper middle class like businessman's family's home would look like mm -hmm. and it was honestly for lack of a better word just gaudy and like there yeah. was like all this like, <laughs> yeah all this red and like the everywhere. wallpaper was ridiculous and like the mm -hmm. really ornate chairs and stuff yeah. but it wasn't like oh this piece is valuable it was handmade like it's you know yeah. it was stuff that had started to be mass produced at like the cusp of the industrial revolution and stuff like that and so Preface. people went to the gilded age yeah and yeah. so people went crazy because they're like oh now we can buy this thing and it's not yeah. exorbitant amounts of money and so they're like let's just have all the things just because we can mm -hmm. um so I kind of get that it's just interesting like her being in the like the higher classes like 
she's saying don't have all this stuff but then of course if you're in the working class or like the like the really lower classes like you don't have the money to have all of the stuff so it, that does yeah. make sense that she so stuff is exciting to you because you yeah. it's harder for you to get it right yeah because yeah. it they you know she probably is very specifically addressing this like class of people who's kind of rising up into the middle class mm-hmm. and like now has more money where they can do this and so like oh yay like I can buy all these things now so I'm going to she's like don't um, be gaudy yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know but I don't think that she would have hated your book decorating or maybe mine as much <laughs> at least all of my, my, my books are accessible and like they do they're everywhere and they look pretty but like at least yeah. they don't I don't like those bookshelves either that have like the glass doors on the front and you can't even like see what yeah. books you're looking at on the inside like I want to be able to easily like yeah. see the titles and like grab things so I don't know yeah it's an interesting contrast yeah um something else that I kind of found interesting about her collection and kind of moving into a different question um so we were chatting earlier about you know the destruction of half of her collection and the fact that it was like you know split between those two heirs um and so why and I know in your book you talk about the need for a proxy for her um you know her collection to be able to speak so why do you argue that the collection needed a proxy to speak for it um and why did it you know go towards those two heirs rather than going to a collection or a special collection where it would have been you know better taken care of potentially um because I know you talk a lot about how the heirs you know understood the art of collecting but then stuff got destroyed so like that's a little bit of an interesting contrast is, um, I don't know. And, you know, as an archivist, it hurt my heart to know that those things weren't taken care of and to know that part of that collection was lost for, you know, future generations. So can you speak a little bit about, you know, the need for a proxy for that type of collection and, um, yeah, kind of the connotations of that? Yeah. Um, I think that Edith Wharton, as a book lover instead of as a pure bibliophile, was a little bit anxious about having her books end up in the right hands. Not so much the right hands in terms of like, you know, somebody who was deserving of it or something like that, but more like somebody who would be able to appreciate it, who had the cultural capital, the education, the training to be able to appreciate the objects that came into their orbit from her. And I think that's why she settled on the two heirs that she did, um, you know, the Clark descendants, um, and then also the um, uh, Royal Tyler descendant, Um, basically because she knew that both of those families in already being rather upper class and having um, sort of estates within the family, like, you know, Kenneth Clark was a big art historian, that they already had this like sense of appreciation for the objects themselves. So the objects would be more or less safe with them. It's funny that that didn't end up being true or at least half true. Um, really, really true at all, actually, because Colin Clark ended up with most of the books and he like didn't care for them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to some extent, I think what she was thinking about is she needed somebody who had the right class background, education and yeah, cultural training to appreciate them as objects. I've often wondered myself why she didn't donate them to a library. I have a sense why she wouldn't maybe donate them to a public library. Um, because she probably imagined that most of her books would not be deemed useful for the collection of a public library and may either be partially discarded or sold off or like, in effect, she would end up having less control, even from the grave, over what happened to them if they went to a public library. Um, But with regards to like, you know, private library collections or archives, 
I think that there was a sense that her um, book collection was not good enough to merit inclusion in a big, important um, research collection, like something like the Hunt Library or something like that. She just, even though she loved books and she collected some decently rare specimens, it was not like a bibliophile's collection by 19th century standards. It was not going to command a lot of money or a lot of attention. And she knew the kind of collections that it did, you know, because she contains things like um, in her library, she... She has the sale catalog of the library of Robert Howe. And when that went to auction, which was in the early 20th century, like he had incredibly rare volumes that sold for tens of thousands of dollars each. Um, at public auction, it was a really big deal among the bibliophile world. You know, by comparison, she's got a John Donne that she like marked up. <laughs> so um, I think she knew that her library was never going to command that much interest from a bibliophilic perspective. And instead, she would rather see it in the hands of somebody who at least was like educated to love books and had the capacity to love them like she loved them. It's unfortunate that that didn't quite play out. And I, I think in some ways, the reason it didn't play out is because the two people that she willed her library collection to did not really need those books in their life. They were both people who had a lot already, you know, like the Clark family at Saltwood Castle already had a library of thousands of books. And so when they added hers to it, it was like just kind of folding it into their collection and it didn't necessarily make a big impact, which I think is why they were basically neglected for the better part of a century um, and not really paid attention to and they fell into disrepair and things like that. The other half of the collection was stored in a warehouse, we think for several years. So like nobody was really paying attention to that either when it ended up getting bombed in the early 1940s. So, um, you know, she kind of took a gamble, I think, based on her own values and thought that she would select people whose values seemed to align with her own. And that didn't totally end up being true. Yeah, no, that totally, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's interesting how it seems that like writers and researchers and creators, like during their own time period, kind of understate their own importance. Um, mm. I actually kind of experienced that recently. UNC had um, Rhiannon Giddens, who she's like a oh, folk yeah. artist, and she actually yeah. came to do a talk here, and she was talking about her research with um, Carolina Arts and um, what she's been doing here in the Carolina archives, and they were, you know, saying, we're going to archive her stuff in a collection, and she was kind of like, I don't know why they'd want to do that. I'm just, you know, I'm just <laughs> me, and everybody there was like, what do you mean you're just you? you're amazing and so it's just so interesting to see how that's kind of like you know reflected in different time periods too and yeah. um in one of my classes I'm in a preservation class right now we look at marginal notes in books and um you know different like handwritten items that have survived through time and how important those are to understanding not only that person but you know culture and society yeah. and like just how that stays consistent through time too. Like I, I know it's probably not good practice, but I write in my books too. Um, okay. and so, yeah, I mean, like you never know what's going to be important for the future. And so it's interesting to see, like, she didn't think it would be. Um, so that's, <laughs> you know, that's really interesting. I think it's one of those things where it's like, at the time, like you said, maybe like if she had donated them to a library or if she had given them to some somebody else or some other community, they would have been either taken in, but then deaccessioned from the library, or they would have been discarded, or it would have been like they sell off some of them and they keep other ones of them. Mm -hmm. And so like maybe the public library, whoever would have thought, well, this doesn't fit our collection or this isn't useful to us at the time. But um, but in, then in hindsight, again, in the future, now that we're like, oh, Edith Wharton, yeah, yeah. prominent writer. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's, 
so much cooler and so much more important to like have that to look back on as a perspective of the time period but nobody nobody at the time of her death like Mm -hmm. I I don't think in the 1920s they were thinking what are people in 100 years gonna want from Edith Wharton's library collection you know what I mean yeah and you know and I I don't know that she would have been hip to this at all probably not because she never went to school and didn't attend college but if you think about what literary criticism even was like in the 1920s and the 1930s toward the end of her life you know it was um it was the turn towards new criticism and it was also this feeling that we discard the author and the author's biography we don't worry about that we're just focused on close reading the text Mm -hmm. and it was like you know this shift away from how literary research had even been done before that was you know archival based looking up old versions of texts and documents and studying them in their original language and all that kind of thing. And I just don't think that was um, part of like the trend of what was happening in the way that people interacted mm-hmm. with books in a critical sense. So she may have, I don't know, have sensed that or she may have heard something about it and just thought like, well, nobody's going to want these for scholarly reasons. So instead, I will just like give them to two people who I think will enjoy them. <laughs> yeah. Do you um, remember having talked about context dependence and context independence in the information class? Some. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is not necessarily related to the podcast. I'm just going to say this because I want to, um, but that it reminds me, I'm taking a perspectives on information class right now as part of the library degree. And we have been talking a lot about context dependence versus context independence and in kind of like a digital data sense of the word. But I feel like that applies a lot to like the new criticism versus like the historical criticism that kind of looks at what was going on at the time period and how, like authors lives affected their work and like what were they commenting on and what was going on and I've always been a fan in general like whether it comes to like libraries history of libraries information science data anything like that like I don't think anything exists in a vacuum and so like I've never really been like a proponent of new criticism I guess like I much prefer looking at like writing from a historical perspective and like I, I don't think that you can take Um, I don't think you can take a work completely outside of like the author's life and their biography and their experiences I mean like sometimes like they're not necessarily writing what they know like the common phrase but and so it's not necessarily linked directly to their life but I feel like there's always some element of it being a product of the time that they were living in Um, at the very least there is an essential link to the moment that they inhabited right if not necessarily like their position in that moment or their perspective on it like you know it's it's a product of the time in which they were alive and times change yeah 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 I mean even though works can transcend time and you know relate to people in different times and in different situations it's still you know subjective to (laughs) how you relate to it compared to like the author would have written it from their point of view so yeah yeah, yeah. I, uh, about a year and a half ago, I published a new version of Edith Wharton's novel, The Age of Innocence for W.W. Norton. And so, you know, in, in editing it, I was asked to basically like, and this is more like a popular facing edition. So they wanted like light editorial footnotes to explain references that modern readers wouldn't get. And like, this was very fun for me because I got to look up things like, why are you not supposed to cut cucumbers with steel knives, right? Like, so like there's a scene where somebody's cook does this and they complain about it because it's like gauche. And like, that's something that makes zero sense in our time. We don't know what that refers to, right? And eventually I had to figure out, it's like, because before stainless steel, steel like was kind of rough and it left this like flavor in wet vegetables and you could taste it. And it was like considered to be like, not gourmet to do that treatment. But I don't know that from my own time period. So like, I have to look up that detail and I have to figure it out through the lens of that time period. 
Yeah, exactly. That makes me want to get the copy that you I put know. your notes we into. We might have to read that next. <laughs> but yeah, you, you got to read the cucumber note. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of times where like, you know, we had like a required copy or edition or whatever of a book for our class and it was just like, you know, just the text or something like that. And there would be questions like that that I would have and I would like make a note or whatever. And sometimes I would ask my professor and sometimes if they were like a real scholar, like in specifically that time or specifically that author, they would be able to give me an explanation. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it would be like, it was just the thing from that time period. I don't so know, it's like weird. Having yeah. that kind of an explanation, like that's really cool and yeah. helpful because I get like, I just feel like I have question marks literally pop up above my head so many times whenever I'm yeah. reading stuff that has those like really specific niche references. But um, I don't know, is what's that your last question? I actually have one more question. You have one more question. Yeah. Okay, I'm we sorry to interrupt question. you no, and embarge in with that. But no, you're good. We have one more question um, and it's kind of a, a good one to end on, I think. But um, so in talking about Wharton, you say she reads the works of her friends, associates, and contemporaries. She received suggestions about what to read in the form of gifts. She reciprocated and found new audiences for her work by giving gifts in kind. And she forged new relationships with people through reading. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and about how people relate through books today and kind of how that's changed through time from, you know, how Wharton would have done that to, you know, how we do that today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a great question. And um, it brings me back, you know, to one of Wharton's most famous friendships, which is with the writer Henry James, mm -hmm. who I personally have a love-hate relationship with, but she really, really liked Henry James. And she loved him first as an author before she knew him personally or knew him as a friend. And in fact, there's a sort of famous story about their first meeting, which did not go very well. Like, um, like at the first meeting, like he kind of said an offhand comment about her appearance and she was worried that she wore the wrong dress. And like, then they didn't speak again or see each other again for like a decade. But in the meantime, you know, she kind of ran in similar circles as him and she'd been reading his books and she loved his books. And the really the way they became friends was that years later, they started corresponding. And it was through their discussions that they had in their letters. Um, once she was kind of establishing herself as a writer and becoming a little bit more confident of her ability and felt like she could talk back to him and that they could reciprocate in their like discussions that they had in their correspondence. So, I mean, that's one way that she formed a friend that um, really came about through the books that she was reading and also in through her interest in the books that she wanted to write as well, I think, because she wanted to sort of write in the same vein as Henry James and ended up kind of doing that. Um, there are other examples of this too, um, such as oh, with Sinclair Lewis, uh, the writer Sinclair Lewis, who she thought should have won the Pulitzer Prize um, in 1920 for his novel Main Street when she won The Age of Innocence. And so she sent him a letter um, basically being like, your book was so much better than mine. You should have been the winner, right? And That's then he ended up um, it is. and then he ended up dedicating subsequent editions of Main Street to her um, because she sent him that letter and then they became friends. I don't even know if they ever met in person, um, but they definitely wrote together to each other a lot and became friendly that way. And, you know, some of her letters towards him are like, they're really, really warm because she sees him as be like, oh, you're a writer who gets it. You're not one of those modernists that's trying to like screw everything up and like ditch with storytelling. You're like, you know, trying to do it the right way. And so like she really saw like this sympathetic soul in him and they became friends with that way. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of instances where she formed friendships that way uh, through books, through reading and through writing. and. You know, I think to some degree that is still a practice that we see in the contemporary world, but it's different now. Mm -hmm. Like I often think about, you know, the friends that I've made through social media, but that itself is a kind of mediated form of reading and writing, right? Where we're like exchanging ideas and references and discourse and, you know, correspondence of a kind. Um, but I also think of the way that I have like 
made friends and professional acquaintances uh, through reading, you know, like where I like read someone's book and then sent them an email or something about that or vice versa. Or like a close colleague of mine um, several years ago, she wrote a book um, that I really liked quite a lot. Her name is Kyla Schuler, and she's like big into like feminist studies. And she wrote this book called The Biopolitics of Power. And um, I read her book and I was asked to review it for a journal. And it was like, it was so hard. It was such a difficult book. And I like, I slogged through it, but I learned a lot. I really liked it. And then I published the review. And then like a few months later, I got this email from her. She's like, you're the only person who reviewed my book who seems to have understood it. So like, you know, we should get together and have coffee. And so like, and now we're pals. So um, so I do think that we still see that happening in our world. Um, and we also see it in lots of like more informal ways, just through, you know, the way we meet people on social media and talk to them or the way we talk about our book preferences on things like Goodreads or on Instagram yeah. or TikTok or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking as well as, you know, like how book talk and, you know, book culture is just so big right now, especially mm -hmm. on social media and yeah. um, how people are kind of like organizing reading groups and book clubs. And then yeah, if you think yeah. about like all the celebrity book clubs that are out there right now, mm -hmm. um, I mean, mm -hmm. those just have such a big impact on like reaching out to readers and connecting readers with new authors and diverse authors, diverse books. So I feel like, and yeah. I also see it as like a way to kind of reclaim sometimes the uglier sides of social media because yeah. social media can be stressful. It can be overwhelming. And I think like a lot of the book centered discourse is about like pausing. It's about enjoying things. It's about like finding connection through the stuff that we read. And like, there are often like, I don't know, just more positive vibes coming out of it. So yeah, no, I agree. And I think, like you said, it's kind of a good resurgence of it and, you know, kind of saving it a little bit. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But that is all the questions that we have, I think, unless you have anything else, Hattie. No, I was just going to say, I think even those like yeah. posts on Instagram that I follow that are like the coffee and the book and the blanket yeah. and the flowers and whatever, <laughs> like it is, it's supposed to be like a moment of peace. I mean, like it's very, yeah, staged, I agree. But it's, I agree. you know, it's supposed to kind of bring, bring you back a little bit from technology and everything like that, which I also do think that, mm -hmm. of course, the technology that we have is a big part of how relationships related to books and related to everything else have kind of yeah. changed in that aspect I mean and then you get the kind of like almost parasocial relationship that I would say some readers have with certain authors but yeah and then but Edith Wharton it's like oh you're my favorite author I love you let's be friends and they yeah. actually would correspond through letters or yeah right social circles it's like yeah I mean happen with the reading public I today. think I think a lot of people make like write books to make social connections you know mm -hmm. like I, I don't think that's a crazy thing to think about I think when we read a book and we have an emotional kind of response to it and then we desire to like create that response in somebody else that itself is a form of social connection right yeah it is yeah, I do think that's really cool. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think I have any other like formal yeah. questions, yeah. but like I really enjoyed talking yes, to you and I really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so Likewise. much for Likewise, like, guys. being able to, to meet with us and chat with us about this. Um, sure. We really enjoyed your book and reading it. And it's fun to see like the elements of our class reflected in your book mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, the connections that we're able to make, you know, throughout the history of libraries and kind of pinpointing it to her time period. So yeah, that's been really interesting for me personally to look at is just seeing the connections that are being made and the payoff of education. Yeah. Learning. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That was such a great conversation. Yeah, I agree. Special thanks to Sheila Liming for allowing us to interview her and for agreeing to participate in our podcast. 
In the context of our class, a large part of Wharton's connection is the impact of the Carnegie libraries that we discussed with her and how her status as not only an upper class member but also a woman impacted her ability to collect books instead of going to the library. I agree. That was an interesting section that Sheila answered for us. Wharton was a supporter of the libraries, but I find it fascinating that she wanted her own collection rather than to use a public one. It kind of reminds me of the beginnings of libraries and keeping them more educational rather than fictional and for pleasure reading. Another connecting point to our class is about the biblioclasms we learned about earlier in the semester. It was interesting to hear about the, the destruction of Wharton's library and how it, although on a smaller scale, is a biblioclasm, both unintentional but still a big factor for the future of her collection. Yeah, that was something that struck me both in reading the book and also in talking to Sheila. <laughs> Sheila talks about having to infer a lot of her information based on letters and Wharton's personal correspondence and packing lists since a large portion of her collection was lost. That speaks a lot to the care and maintenance needed for collections such as these and how much of an impact the loss of them can have on future research. I agree. Wharton's story also connects to our field of study by acknowledging the impact that personal collecting has had on library collections in general, and how much of the thought of collectors and bibliophiles has evolved over time. When it comes to library history and Wharton's personal history, we can learn about ensuring access for all classes of socioeconomic persons, caretaking and maintenance of collections, and the preservation of materials over time in order to maintain vital historical information. Yeah, we can learn a lot about history and society from collections, both personal like Wharton's and public access like libraries, which is why we need to ensure the future of them and access to them as well. Thanks again to Sheila Liming for answering our questions. If you want to know more about her, she has an active social media and website. And if you guys have any questions for us, you can feel free to reach out or comment on our discussion post in Canvas. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed our podcast and our discussion.